Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, my name is Bex and welcome to Getting Emotional. Every week I'll discover a brand new emotion, or rather, I'll tell you about an emotion you may well have felt, but had no idea there was a name for. This week, it's Brabant. So first of all, welcome back to season two. If you're an old follower, thank you so much for coming by again and sticking this in your ears. And if you're a new listener, well, thank you so much for checking this out. Before I begin the podcast, sorry, a bit of admin, but um, I've got to say it. Where is that top from? Like a jumble sale or something? And how long has it been since you got your hair cut? Because I'm not saying you're looking rough, but I've seen hedgerows with a better trim. Okay, I don't mean it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, I was just trying to show you the emotion of Brabant. Uh, that is something you might not have felt just then. More likely you were annoyed or confused, quite frankly. Um, but it's something I felt as I got in what I think we can all agree are some pretty razor-sharp barbs there about your clothes and your haircut. You see, Brabant is the pleasurable way you feel when you tease someone and you try to push them into annoyance. You're pressing their buttons and you're loving it. The idea of Brabant was created by writer Douglas Adams and TV producer John Lloyd in 1984 for their book The Deeper Meaning of Lyft, a dictionary of things there aren't any words for yet, but there ought to be. Quite a long title, lads. Now, in it, they picked interesting place names and then assigned new meanings to them. That's why if you Google Brabant, the first hit you might get is about an old province in the Netherlands. Other examples include the redefinition of Alcoy, a region in Spain, as the feeling of wanting to be bullied into having another drink, and Trunch, a village in Norfolk, being repurposed to mean instinctive resentment of people younger than you. No idea how that feels, absolutely never felt it, never ever felt that at all, ever. Anyway, moving on. Uh, This was a game that Adams played with a teacher at school. Then he used it as a section of a book for Not the Nine O'Clock News in 1982, before the idea took off into this book of its own. Originally, this word was conceived as meaning an inclination to push someone's buttons, but over time, the meaning kind of changed a little bit to include the pleasure you feel when you do it. And I racked my brain. Who do I know that likes pushing buttons, teasing people, uh, seeing how far they can take a joke? comedians, right? And actually, as it turns out, I know a really good one who uh, not only is an amazing live stand-up, but also loves other comedians and all types of comedy too, so it's a safe bet. I figured he would have something interesting to say on this. Hello, I'm Nish Kumar. Uh, Brilliant stuff. Nish, uh, thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, This is all about Brabant, the art of pushing someone's buttons, and I figured a comedian would be uh, quite good to chat to. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think... Probably, um, <laughs> I guess, like second down on the job description after making jokes to make an audience laugh. I guess button pushing is like is in the job description somewhere. <laughs> I was going to say this because I was like, obviously, you're there to make people laugh. That's the whole point of you being on stage. But there is a little part of you, surely, that wants to push boundaries and see how far you can go. Yeah, I think I mean, I'm not sure that that's true of all comics. And I definitely think that there are lots of comedians that are specifically... But I don't know, because I feel like even even someone like Tim Vine, who, you know, on the surface, he's just there. He's doing puns. But even Tim Vine is sort of playing with the audience's expectations Mm -hmm. and slightly needling them. One of the genuinely funniest things I've ever seen 
was in uh, 2015 at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. They have a big gala that goes on the TV and comics go on and do three or four minute spots. And Tim Vine was in the middle of doing his and he just stopped and looked down at the audience and sort of feigned somebody shouting something at him and just went, what's that? For a living? Yeah. <laughs> and like, to some extent, like even Tim Vine, the guy who is, who is doing puns and wordplay, delights in pushing buttons. What I mean, the second great, I, mean, I immediately turned this podcast into a Tim Vine fan I love it, go for it. <laughs> In 2006, in Edinburgh, uh, during the Fringe, uh, on Cowgate, which is one of the various big thoroughfares mm. in Edinburgh, as you know, Bex, <laughs> I do. there was a thing where um, there's like loads of advertising billboards and Tim Vine took out an advertising billboard that had a picture of him and said Tim Vine in huge letters. And when you got up close to it in the bottom corner, it said, is not appearing at this year's Edinburgh <laughs> Festival. And so I think, yeah, I think probably to some extent all comedians do enjoy pushing pushing people's buttons in some way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to be like a, a kind of political comedian or anything to do. Like, you know, if you don't like puns and you're watching Tim Vine, you know, if after your 10th minute of puns, you'll be like, oh, man. Like it is. And he knows that probably as well. Yeah, and he knows that. Yeah. And he's not trying. He's not. He's never tried to win you back round. There's a certain point with a comedian and it's not, it doesn't speak well to our characters, but there's a certain point where as a comedian, you steadily realise that some people are loving what you're doing in a room and some people are not loving what you're doing, mm. especially when you start out and you're doing comedy clubs and people aren't buying a ticket for a particular comedian, or if they are, they're buying it for one of the four comedians. But the majority of the audience is coming there to see a comedy night. And in a sense, it's it's a baffling system mm -hmm. <laughs> because you, you know, you could be, you, you're playing potluck with your evening's entertainment. Um, and so there is a point when you're a comedian where that you eventually get to where you realise a lot of the audience are really laughing. Some of the audience are not laughing. And if not only if you don't actively try and win over the people who are not laughing, if you start needling the people who are not yeah. laughing, the people who are laughing start laughing even louder. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, like, how do you deal with with an audience who are half there and half not there? Do you kind of go in hard on that audience who aren't on your side yet? Or do you just leave them do it and think, I've lost you, so see you later? Well, I think I think it's sort of, I think it's a fine line to draw because you don't want things to get, if things get nasty, then, it, or if it feels like you're being spiteful, then even the people that are enjoying it can stop enjoying mm. it. But you, if you play it just the right side of spiteful, um, <laughs> then it can be very satisfying. It can be very satisfying indeed. God, that's quite a tightrope, isn't it? The right side of spiteful. <laughs> yeah, and there isn't like it isn't like somebody there isn't there isn't like a line somebody can draw for you. Mm. It's just you eventually learn by years of getting it wrong how to get that line right, and it sometimes it doesn't even, you know, there are times where a room has turned on me where I've said something relatively minor. And there are other times where you're in control to such an extent that you can say appalling things <laughs> and the room will continue to side with you. I've turned rooms using much less unpleasant language than I have on other occasions where I've been incredibly successful. It's, su it's such, it's a strange sort of voodoo. 
you, you, you can feel it in your body when you're approaching the line and how to stay the right side of it. And you don't, you only learn it through experience. Um, and that, yeah, it's a really, really fascinating part of being a comedian because it would be very useful if somebody could say, if you say these five things, yeah. the audience will turn on you. Um, but the problem is that sometimes if you say any of those five things, and sometimes if you say all of those five things, you'll have an absolutely unbelievable evening. <laughs> <laughs> the audience will have the time of their lives. God, it must depend on so much like time of day, uh, the vibe of the audience, like where you are in the world. Like it must be tricky. Like, can you win an audience back if you have offended them or if something's gone a bit awry? It depends on how badly things have gone awry. Um there are times where you can bring it back round after you've really made a mess of things, but that is that is definitely something that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you're always you, you you know what you learn eventually is that you can. There are moments where you're controlling the audience not liking you, and you're doing that deliberately because you know you're going to surprise them. I like the the. The, t- the only thing I can think of, the first thing that comes to mind for me is I used to have a joke about how the Spice Girls are terrible because they have one black member and she was called Scary. Oh, yeah, I and remember that joke, yes. The thing that the fun thing to do was to create the gap between the feed line and the punchline because that is itself the joke, basically. Yeah. But you got more out of saying the Spice Girls are terrible, letting it hang for a second. And then allowing the audience to become volubly annoyed. And you just over-egg that by going, uh, like, by saying things like, do you have different Spice Girls? The Spice Girls are terrible. And as people start getting angry, say, the Spice, like, Zigga Zigga, that, the, like, (laughs) are you joking with me? And me getting more hostile and them getting more hostile. I always knew that if there was a tipping point where if I was really angry and they were really angry and we built it to a fever pitch, then the punchline kind of deflates that whole atmosphere and would get a massive laugh. Um, and it was it was really fun playing with that. And, you know, when I would do gigs in, like, in Australia, it was fun to go, is there a Australian Spice Girls that I've not realised were happening that you all had that are a completely different group from the Spice Girls the rest of the world had? And, you know, it's like you can sort of, you can sort of play with that. It's much better when you control the beginning and the end of the process. Uh, and you allow the needling to happen yeah. in a way that's really satisfying. Because in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, you guys are going to really enjoy this once I <laughs> deflate this tension I've manufactured. Man, that is a brave thing to do, though. I don't think I would have the courage because I actively just want people to like me all the time. The idea of creating a situation where people don't like me for even a short while, i that genuinely puts the fear of God into me. Yeah, I mean... again I think all of those things because obviously I mean this is not true of all comedians but this is absolutely true of me (laughs) I do have a pathological need for everyone to like me Um, but I also have a need for that to happen exclusively on my terms (laughs) (laughs) you know so and also you know you watch a lot of you as a comedy fan a lot of the comedy I enjoy is when it's sort of testing your like slightly testing your patience. I mean, I obviously Stuart Lee has made a career. Gonna say Stuart Lee, te- yeah. He has made a career from testing people's patience yeah. and playing with people's expectations. And I mean, even if you take it back to the most significant example I can think of of pushing an audience's buttons and testing their patience 
is the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons when Sideshow Bob keeps standing on rakes. <laughs> and that that it's purist because, again, there's no political subtext to it. There's no philosophical needling. It's button pushing purely for button pushing sake. Mm-hmm. And it's button pushing purely by testing an audience's patience. There isn't like... There's no philosophical element to it. It's literally, it's the most purest distilled example of how something is funny, then it can be annoying. Then you become outraged because you cannot believe the gall of these people. And then it goes around to being funny again. It's such a precise art. And also, by the way, just great Simpsons reference. Just big fan of anybody referencing the Simpsons. It's like, there's a lot of, I mean, it's it's because the age we are, um, but like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Simpsons between series one to nine, particularly the classics. That is sort of pure distilled comedy, and so it, especially when you talk about comedy, it's very hard to get away from some stuff that's happened in the Simpsons. I could not think about that Simpsons episode without internally hearing Kelsey Grammer's sideshow Bob Shudder. If you're a fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not, it goes something like, Ugh. "Okay, it's it's a bit better when he does it." Anyway. It's fair to say that Brabant is a new, semi-invented word, but that doesn't make it any less real. Aren't all words invented? I mean, Shakespeare and Dickens did it, so why not also celebrate the works of one of our best modern-day writers, the inventor of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams? Plus, just because it's new doesn't mean it's not useful. As you can tell from talking to Nish, the idea of Brabant exists in the root of a lot of types of comedy. Stand-up, sketch, sitcom. And Nish is good at comedy, that's a given. But I wanted to get into it more. Have these attempts to tease an audience ever gone wrong? Has he ever picked the wrong crowd? Brabant is a comedian's emotion, sure, but did the audience ever turn the tables on Nish and give him a taste of his own medicine? Have you ever offended somebody and really not meant it? Like, have you have you ever... So many times. (laughs) Yeah, so many times. Especially when you're starting out in when you're sort of starting out in comedy i one thing that happened in 2013 there there are definitely times where i've said stuff and immediately regretted it right um where you've just gone in too hard on someone and a lot of the time when you're starting out if somebody heckles you sometimes they're doing it just to be supportive Mm -hmm. you know and there are other times where somebody does heckle you and they're deliberately trying to derail the gig but if you go too aggressively at them the audience's sympathies suddenly shift to them and you have to sort of learn how to be more of a soft target I mean that's not true of all comedians I mean like Stu Lee is able to be awful to people Mm -hmm. and people love it because that's that sort of that's the character of the persona that he's crafted whereas I think for me it's harder for me to be terrible to people there was some something that happened a few years ago which reflects poorly on me and the audience member. I think normally something reflects badly on me or the audience member, but there was an incident that happened in 2013 that reflected poorly on everybody. I was doing a gig, I was doing a solo show in Edinburgh and there were just a group of people that were unbelievably hammered, right? Mm And they, they had basically just derailed the entire show. It was a tiny room, they were really drunk and I called them the worst word you could use. <laughs> Good. Ag- excellent. Great start. And the thing is, two of them were men and two of them were women. And the problem with those people is that they 
got you know the, the problem with that is you have to be careful with how you use that word you yeah. know and especially you have to be quite careful if you're a man using that word about a woman in her press you have to be you you, you just you have to be sort of sensitive to, to the fact that that is a really there's a great 30 rock episode about where tina Fey's character is basically like the problem with that word is there is no when a man calls a woman that word, there is no word a woman can use in response to that to a guy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And yeah. I think, you know, I think part of the problem is in England, it's a little bit easier. We were a bit looser with that word than America, but mm-hmm. these people were all English. And anyway, they sort of, they took it very poorly. And then I took it, I took them taking it very poorly, very poorly. And at the end of it, the whole show was just completely ruined. Mm-hmm. Now, in my defence, they were being that word. Yes. All four of them. <laughs> what a great defence. In my defence, yeah. I was right. <laughs> In my defence, I was right and they were being that word. But you don't necessarily need to use all the words all the time. You know, mm. you don't, you, you all, if you do, you need to be prepared for the fact that if you call somebody that word, some of the other audience members might be like, oh, that's not cool. Um, you know, it's, so... Anyway, they then stayed after the show because there is nothing like oh, drunk God. people to sort of match you with, like, just moral indignation. There is oh, nothing that can compete. Yeah. So we're afterwards we're having this argument, and I said they'd stayed to shout at me, and like the venue staff are all around, and the guy sort of basically said something like, "He was like, how how dare you say that to us." And I said, look, man, you're just incredibly drunk. And he said, I am not as drunk as you think I am. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I can't man. even say the word drunk. And then he again, like, tried to up his moral indignation. And he went very posh. Right. Yeah. And he the, was like, yeah. oh, sir, you have disgraced yourself. <laughs> it was so weird. But it was an example of something where nobody handled it well like they were obviously out of line but I way overreacted like way overreacted it's really hard though because in that moment uh first of all obviously not that you were like fresh into comedy but you know it was when you were a bit newer and it's hard to know the boundaries because you're kind of I guess you're the teacher to the class like you're in charge but also you're kind of not because they're your paying customers it's weird yeah for sure yeah it's definitely you know and then you know, then there are times like later in my career where I've said things like, God, I hope that guy dies, <laughs> you know, to an audience. And it has not, if anything, it has massively improved the atmosphere. Um, and objectively, that is a worse thing to say. Sure. That is a much worse thing to say. But it, you have, it's, it's about understanding what's happening in the room around you and understanding the atmosphere that's been created, you know, because it is like, if you play it wrong, everyone's like, how dare you say that? But if you play it right, everyone's like, yeah, we also hope he dies. <laughs> Do you quite enjoy that, though? Because there must be um, just the very core of it, like you're proving you're good at your job because you can hold an audience and you can like bend them to your will, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, it's it's sort of fun, but, you know, in a way, like... It's sort of fun in a way like eating five donuts is fun. Right. You know, like it's fun. Obviously, it's enjoyable. But afterwards, you do hate yourself a bit. If, you, if you've if you done something where you've really just, where you've really made a room laugh just purely by being spiteful. Yeah. Uh, 
afterwards you are there is a sortly i was trying to like think i guess like people who take drugs would probably come up with some sort of better drug reference it's a, <laughs> maybe it's like what cocaine is like because like in the moment obviously you feel like this huge adrenaline spike and you think wow i've really like i've really like showed this person but then afterwards you feel sad and empty mm. and you feel like i sort of participated in just you know a, a just the pure cruelty theater yeah and obviously when you do stuff in a show and you write stuff and you craft something where you lose the audience and you bring them back on side or you say something that you know is going to push their buttons because you know it's gonna come back around and be funny that's totally different mm-hmm. and that's very satisfying and that feels great and that and the performer and the audience feel great after that because it, the you know it's like it's like a magic trick like I, I love when a magician does a trick at the end I feel like I love being tricked in that moment if somebody does a trick and steals my wallet I feel terrible <laughs> but if somebody just does you know uh, and if I watch a comedian say something and I'm like how dare oh very good <laughs> I love that feeling. I love that sense of being tricked. There's something it gives you like sense of childlike wonder when you're in the audience watching something like that. And if you've made that happen, it feels very satisfying. But just being cruel for the sake of being cruel doesn't really ever feel good. It's a bit of a cheap laugh. Yeah, it just makes you feel a bit empty afterwards. Yeah, I can imagine. It's interesting. I was wondering, did you... um... Like, as a kid, did you have brothers or sisters or cousins that you would kind of needle and tease a little bit? Or has this just come from doing comedy that you've kind of learned? Oh, no, I'm awful. Right. I I love irritating people. <laughs> I absolutely love it. It's my favourite thing. I, I have a younger brother and he, he and I just used to irritate each other all the time. I did wonder about that because I'm an only child, so I have no idea. I mean, I think siblings just wind each other up constantly. Uh, it's just constant... I read a really interesting thing about the characters of Jim. And, I don't know why. I'm literally looking at a book about the American adaptation <gasps> of The Office. Is that the blue one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy Green. Yeah, I'm looking at I've it. just read it. Yeah, it's yeah brilliant. love it's it. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. And there's an amazing thing in it where Greg Daniels was mm-hmm. talking about the characters of Jim and Dwight and how he said he wanted them to feel like brothers who were just needling each other constantly. Yeah. And that is that thing, like, when you, when you have siblings, like, you always feel that you have to get the last word in or you always have to be the person who like hit the other person last. <laughs> that that definitely is a big part of growing up. Also, like my whole family did used to sort of tease each other all the time. Like it, it was, you know, my cousin like made a mild social faux pas in 1998 that he's still being reminded of today. <laughs> you know, like that that kind of was that that sort of mockery was sort of a currency in my yeah. family. And the the idea was that you were sort of expected to have a thick skin about it and give out as much as you took, really. Yeah, when I was a kid, I called strawberries and ice cream uh, Barbies and ice cream. And (laughs) my family still, I mean, I was what, like, I don't know how old kids are when they speak, three, two, three, four, I don't know. Still, to this day, I am not allowed to live it down. Like, that is just, you're right, it's currency in our our family. That's a classic, that's a classic family piece of mockery. That's classic family button pushing. And they do it all the time. When we're in a restaurant, they say to the waiter, do you have, and then they go, Rebecca, what would you like? And I'm like, oh man. <laughs> Strawberries and ice cream? Yeah, oh God. And right. they love it. Absolutely love every second of it. It's You're right, it's classic family stuff. Uh, is there somebody that you wish you could push the buttons off, but somebody who's just impervious to any kind of teasing or mockery? I assume other comedians, but I don't know if there's somebody in your family who's just impervious to that. No, I mean, I'm kind of able to irritate anyone. I think even Great. the Dalai Lama would slap me around the face after a while. I think even I think I, I think I have the capacity to irritate 
everybody. There is no one that I can't get a rise out of. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Nish, that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, there are so many. There, I, there is no one that I can't get a rise out of. I'm, like, <laughs> such an annoying person at my core. <laughs> well, I'm going to leave it there, Nish. That was a perfect place to, uh, with that that admitting uh there um that was fantastic thank you so much no problem my pleasure Beth. <laughs> it was really helpful talking to nish because he reminded me that teasing someone feeling the joy of that brabant is very different to just being mean as a comedian it seems like getting those cheap laughs for being cruel doesn't interest him at all what he wants to do and what to be fair he's very good at is drawing the crowd in misdirecting them, playing the game, and seeing how far he can go. And of course, as we said, this emotion isn't exclusive to comedians. Maybe you know the feeling from being the class clown back at school, or perhaps you tease someone when you flirt with them. Maybe, for your family, the act of teasing isn't just a way of joking around. Like Nish said, it could be a currency, a bond, a way of proving how close you all are. I think that when you tease someone, yeah, it's fun, but it's also a warm reminder of your shared sense of humour, of your in-jokes, of knowing exactly what buttons to push, but also having the kindness to not push too many at the same time. It's an art, and you don't have to be a comedian to be good at it, but it probably helps. This was Getting Emotional, and that was Brabant. Big thanks to Nish Kumar for chatting to me, and thank you so much to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, a review, preferably a good one, please, uh, wherever it is you get your podcasts, would mean so much. And you can find me on Twitter at GetEmotionalPod. We have had some great guests so far, and we've got some great guests still to come. So hopefully, I'll see you soon. Bye.